This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. This week on the program, we have for you the middle of our three-part mini-series with esteemed ufologist Anne Druffle. We got lots of great feedback already on the first part, which covered the Tahunga Canyon contacts. If you missed that, you definitely want to go back and pick up Part 1. But moving forward, over the course of the next two weeks, we're going to go in-depth on Anne's amazing book, Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. As you'll hear when we get into the interview, I absolutely loved this book as a student of ufology's rich history and someone with an active interest in the personalities involved in the field of UFO studies. I was enthralled by this book, which covers the remarkable life and amazing contributions to ufology by renowned atmospheric physicist James E. McDonald. In this week's episode, we're going to dive right into Firestorm. First, we're going to find out how Anne ended up writing the story of James E. McDonald's UFO years. We're going to speculate on how ufology would look today if McDonald hadn't died in 1971. McDonald as leader of ufology in the late 1960s, how he bridged the gap between science and civilian UFO groups, we're going to talk about his visit to Project Blue Book in 1966 and how he ripped the lid off of what was really going on there, his contentious relationship with J. Allen Hynek, his view of the ETH as the least unsatisfactory hypothesis and what exactly that means, his trip to Australia and the subsequent political fallout of that visit, the 1968 congressional hearing on UFOs, Jim and Coral Lorenzen and the APRO organization, and the infamous Heflin Photos, one of the more memorable UFO cases that McDonald examined. Plus, of course, tons and tons more, and that's just the first half of our discussion on Firestorm. We'll have a preview at the end of the program where we'll talk about the second half. In total, it's a richly detailed interview. We're going to be covering a wealth of major events in ufology's history, all of which were experienced and witnessed firsthand by Anne, and then re-experienced from McDonald's perspective when she wrote Firestorm. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Anne Druffle, let me give you a little bit of background on her. UFO researcher and author Anne Druffle dates her interest in the UFO question to 1945, when, as a schoolgirl, she viewed a bright yellowish object, very high, in clear blue skies over Long Beach, California. Interested in Earth mysteries of all kinds, Druffle has researched various aspects of the UFO question and investigated reports of all kinds since 1957. She was one of the first investigators for NICAP, remaining with them from April 1957 to 1973. During the NICAP years, she became acquainted with renowned atmospheric physicist Dr. James E. MacDonald, as you'll find out here in the interview, and participated with him in several UFO cases during his six years of UFO research. After NICAP was destroyed by subversive agents from the FBI and CIA who had secretly penetrated into the higher realms of the organization, Drubble joined the mutual UFO network, MUFON, 
with which she is still actively associated as investigator, frequent contributor to their journals, and other official capacities. She was a U.S. consultant and regular contributor for the British research journal Flying Saucer Review through 2004. She has authored six books and numerous articles for newsstand magazines on UFOs and other Earth mysteries, and has contributed 190-plus articles and columns for top UFO journals in the field. Her website is www.andruffle.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded over the course of two days, January 24th and January 27th, 2009. Anne Druffle, talking about Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science, on VOA Audio, Season 4. All right, now uh, let's move into Firestorm here. And as I said, I read both books uh, in the last week prior to to our interview here. And this thing is just an amazing tome. Just the text alone is 525 pages. And then there's a whole host of extra stuff at the end, uh, all kinds of appendixes, just an amazing array of, of, of appendixes and glossary and all kinds of great information there in the back. As I said, 525 pages of text, an amazing book. Easily, hands down, one of the very best historical ufology books I've ever read. I learned so much about, let's call it the James E. McDonald years of ufology, 66 to 71, that I had never even learned before, and an amazing firsthand perspective that you gleaned from McDonald's journals. I guess we'll start out with sort of the obvious, uh, you know, jump-off question here, and that's just what made you decide to write the book here about James E. McDonald's research into the UFO phenomenon in his life? Oh, dear. Uh, it was not that I decided. Uh, I was given the opportunity to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1990s, I learned from Betsy McDonald, his, his widow who, who lives in uh, Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, uh, that McDonald's UFO archives, his UFO files, had never been given to any university or any any source where they were available. Yeah. And that the family had kept these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wonderfully investigated cases in in what they called the UFO room, which was a little tiny part of their house, the UFO room. <laughs> and they treasured them. That they, they didn't understand them or, or read them or anything like that because uh, most of his family had no interest in his interest in UFOs. Yeah. But uh, when I learned that these archives or these files were not available to the public, I uh, contacted the Fund for UFO Research, and I asked for a grant so that I could archive them and give them to a place where they would be uh, treasured and taken care of and uh, be available to the public. And it was um, it was Betsy that she, we became good friends. She's wonderful. Uh, it was Betsy who, who um, helped me contact a certain of McDonald's colleagues who were still uh, academics in the, in the uh, Institution of Atmospheric Physics on the University uh, of Arizona campus at Tucson. And uh, I got uh, numerous interviews with these, uh, with these uh, colleagues, these scientists, and numerous interviews with Betsy, and um, it was wonderful. This was done while I was archiving the files for the Fund for UFO Research, and it was Betsy who who um, 
Well, and and a couple of his colleagues, too, who arranged to have them archived in the personal collection section of the uh, library of the University of Arizona at Tucson. And so they are treasured there. They are treasured possibly almost as much as his scientific work was. was. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. If someone went to University of Arizona, they can look through all this kind of stuff now? Yes, they can. Wow. Yes, uh, it's open to the public. Yeah, after reading the book, uh, you may The even... curator is Roger Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. Okay, yeah. After reading the book, you make me want to take the trip out to Arizona just to dive into this into this library of stuff there. So, I mean, you do an oh, amazing I job. I hope you can. So many people are going, and they're writing about McDonald and using his files for other things. And uh, the uh, UFO Hunters show, you know, with Bill Burns mm-hmm. and his team, uh, they, they went uh, to the archives, and uh, they show the archives there, the... Uh, uh, of his UFO files. Oh, wow. It's, it's just amazing to see them on these shelf after shelf. Yeah, I'm going to have to look for that on uh, on UFO Hunters for sure because that sounds awesome. Yeah, like I said, the book's amazing. It's just so amazingly well-researched and, and detailed. Uh, I had read Firestorm first, and then I read the Tohunga Canyon Contacts, and then in, in the second book, uh, Tohunga Canyon, you mentioned the, your love of footnotes and having just read... Uh, Firestorm, I couldn't help but chuckle about that because the book is just amazingly rich with footnotes in the book. Well, you so. see, uh, w- when you write a scientifically oriented book, you have to have footnotes. Uh, you can't just write uh, nonfiction without telling where the information came from originally. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the way scientists write. This is the way scientifically oriented researchers write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, it's not that I love footnotes, but, uh, I I think it's extremely important that the people know where the information came from originally. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to belittle you or anything like that. Oh, I, no. Okay. Oh, <laughs> him, no. <laughs> I just meant having read all those footnotes for Firestorm, and then you mentioned the footnotes in, in, <laughs> in this Hunger yes. Canyon. I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's you know, you and I are, like, psychically connected here on a few different areas uh, <laughs> through, uh-huh. through the books. And i got to give you props for bringing James E. McDonald back to light here in the UFO community because the book uh, really, I think, does a, an amazing job of testifying to his contribution to the field. And, and otherwise, I think, in, in a lot of cases, like I said about uh, Ida Bell Epperson, major figures in the world of ufology are sometimes forgotten, but you've managed to, to bring James E. McDonald way back into the, into the forefront of, of ufology history. So I have to offer you. Uh, that's a big contribution, I think. In the Thank overall you. If I hadn't done it, someone in the field certainly would have, because he was a most prestigious atmospheric physicist who had the courage to come out openly into the scientific community and say, look, here's a serious scientific question that is being badly neglected by science. The UFO phenomenon, what are they? Do they exist? Uh, he, he was a remarkable, remarkable man. And uh, you asked how I how I wrote the book. It was during the archiving of his files. I went, uh, I think it was eight times to Tucson to to work on them, and we worked on them uh, here too, of course. Uh, it was during that time that I think Betsy uh, got enough uh, trust in me 
uh, as an objective researcher and writer, to, uh, she asked me if uh, if I would be interested in writing uh, about his UFO research, and and that's how the book started. Yeah. Yeah, well, as I said, it's amazing. It's a must-have book for any serious student of ufology and UFO history. I, I thought I knew a lot about the history of ufology until I read this book, and then I realized that I have a lot more to learn, and uh, I appreciate that so much. So let's sort of start looking at some of the finer points here of Firestorm. And uh, the first one I want to bring up is a very early statement you make in the book, and I found it really ironic because in Stan Friedman's latest book, he makes almost an identical statement and that is that if James E. MacDonald had lived past 1971, that the world of ufology would be completely different than what it is today. And so I guess, and I sort of posed the same question to Stan when I interviewed him last month that I'll uh, pose to you now, and that's to sort of speculate a little bit on what you think the world of ufology would look like had James E. MacDonald, uh, you know, lived a normal lifespan and, and, and continued out his research into UFOs. You see, uh, it's from 66. To 71, when uh, when McDonald was open in the field, working with the scientific community and the civilian research UFO field, he made remarkable contributions. And uh, because of his background in the military and in atmospheric physics, he knew very highly placed military people very highly placed government officials, and he was able to reach those people and explain to them the information he was getting from his own personal investigation of UFOs, that UFO, the UFO phenomenon seemed to be a real phenomenon that was being badly neglected by science. And uh, he was making great headway both into the military and both into uh, high government officials. And we think that if he had not died uh, so tragically in 71, that possibly he could have worked his way through the government cover-up. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he could have because uh, he had at least one very, very big uh, scientific community uh, a group, organization, who had their own UFO research group because of his influence on them. And I think that other scientific organizations would have had their own UFO research groups apart from him, you know, and seeing how serious the problem was, how very real it was, and that the scientific community uh, at large uh, might have been able to influence the government to end the cover-up. Yeah, you just don't see that anymore nowadays with this, with these big scientific groups even inviting UFO people to come and speak. And it sounded like back in the 60s when he was doing his work that that was a common occurrence. Well, it was a common occurrence for him, you see. Mm -hmm. He gave hundreds of talks before the most influential scientific organizations they asked him to come and talk about you, the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. Because of his his prestige in the atmospheric physics field and in the scientific community at large, he was highly, highly uh, honored and um, respected. Uh, it wasn't that they asked many others, but uh, he did bring about a congressional hearing. Yes. Helped bring about a congressional hearing, NICAP and McDonald. Mm -hmm. Uh, put together a, an actual public 
congressional hearing on UFOs, and six prominent scientists uh, all participated with six others, you know, sending in other papers. Yeah. So uh, this, you know, this could have gone on if McDonald had not died so so tragically. Yeah, it sounds like he was the critical bridge, like you said, between the scientific community and the civilian UFO research community. And, and when he was gone, that link was gone, and then the gulf began to expand between the two, uh, you know, social structures. Exactly. The, 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 gulf, uh, the gulf opened up again. The, the gulf was there. And then McDonald entered the field, and as you say, uh, a bridge was, uh, was formed. Then he died, and the bridge collapsed. Yeah. And there is no, absolutely no interest in the scientific community at large, you know, among the, the highly placed uh, scientific organizations. In, in the UFO phenomenon, and, and not to, that I know of anyway. And to people like you and I who are interested in the UFO phenomenon, that's just a tragic turn of events, really, uh, when you think about it, because things looked so promising there. And it was, yes. Yeah. One little minor little uh, aspect of the book that I wanted to ask you about, because I've always kind of been interested in UFO groups, NICAP, MUFON, APRO, uh, and you named one in here that I'd never even heard of, the Civilian Saucer Intelligence Group. Uh, based out of New York, I believe, CSI, which would be a great title for a UFO group nowadays. But uh, I guess just tell people a little bit about that group because it seems to have fallen by the wayside as far as uh, awareness goes within ufology history. Well, it, it was a small group of very, very well-qualified researchers who were interested in the UFO phenomenon. And that is how Ida Bell first got into the field. A, a learning of CSI and uh, researchers like Ted Blocher and others, you know, very prominent uh, people who were in the field. And uh, she became friends with all of them in her in her friendly way. And uh, she she knew what they were doing. And uh, but it was just a small group. Uh, I don't know how many they had. Probably less than a dozen people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I may be wrong. I, I, uh, if I am, I apologize. But it was a very small but very influential group that influenced uh, NICAP uh, extremely well. Interesting. And, and Kehoe. Wow, interesting. Yeah, definitely something I'd like to look into more. Uh, sort of a, a forgotten history there a little bit about, about that sort of influence. Very interesting. Yes. Uh, you, as you established in the book, McDonald sort of had been looking at the UFO phenomenon for about eight years before he entered into the more public role looking at UFOs in 1966. Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure I get my facts straight as I get into the question here. Um, and so we'll sort of dive in with that part first. And, and before he sort of got went public with his UFO investigations, uh, he had taken sort of a more under-the-radar approach but was – definitely looking into a lot of UFO cases in the Arizona area from around where he lived. I found it kind of interesting that he was under the impression that he was just going to take the summer of 66 to look into the UFO phenomenon and, then, and that he thought or hoped that by the end of the summer he'd be able to convince the scientific establishment that it was uh, important to look at UFOs. Uh, so many people, it seemed, get into the UFO phenomenon in the same way where they think they'll wrap it up within a few weeks or a few months, and then it turns out, you know, they've spent a lifetime looking at UFOs. Yeah. Um, I guess just talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, McDonald was the kind of mind 
that whenever there was a question, a scientific question come to him, he would take the time to explore it. And usually it only took one uh, one year, uh, maybe a few months to explore it. And he would write uh, a papers uh, published in the most uh, prestigious scientific journals. And uh, th- that would be it. And then he'd go on to the next uh, question, you see, the next um, question in the atmospheric physics. Mm-hmm. And then when he came upon the the question of the UFO phenomenon, he regarded it as a problem uh, or a question of atmospheric physics. And that's why he thought that he would take, uh, uh, you know, one summer off, was it? One summer mm-hmm. <laughs> off to explore it. And... uh or maybe a year, he uh, he discovered that it wasn't that simple. Exactly, yeah. And then one sort of precursor I found uh, in the book around that time uh, sort of set the stage for what would be a number of stumbling blocks, it sounded like, for him, was that he originally uh, was well on his way to getting some National Academy of Science funding to do a one-man study of UFOs, And then next thing you know, it all fell apart because upper echelon levels of the government decided that they were going to investigate UFOs. Uh, The Air Force, I think, uh, I'm not positive it was the Condon Committee that they decided to. The Condon Committee evolved from that. Yeah. Within that summer of 66, one of the more colorful parts of the book and very interesting for people like me who only know of Blue Book by reputation alone is his three visits to Blue Book in 1966, the summer of 66. Uh, because, as you said, it gleaned right from the journals. You get an amazing first-hand perspective of what was going on there at Blue Book. So I guess talk a little bit about McDonald's visit to Blue Book. Well, McDonald was aware that uh, the Air Force had an ongoing project in which the, the Air Force claimed that they were investigating all UFO reports that came to their attention from the military and I believe the public, too. Uh, all that came to their attention. And he thought, well, he's going to go and see what they have. And uh, when he got there, it was totally different from what he expected. Uh, he had expected a scientific staff there. The Air Force, after all, has the money. He, he found that there were um, there were three three on the staff. There was a secretary. There was um, a um, an assistant. And there was a Hector, a Major Hector Quintanilla, who was at that time was head of Project Blue Book, and uh, he he discovered that they, they let him, gave him access to certain of the files. Certain of the files were not um, accessible by him. Uh, the ones uh, against one of the walls uh, were supposed to be radar sightings. And uh, they, he was told, well, th- those are not open to you. In other words, classified, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so he couldn't have those, but he was given access to to a lot of the files that um, were uh, military and and uh, uh, private files, public files. Yeah. And he, he went through the ones that he was aware of. He, he knew about dozens and dozens of cases that had investigated uh, by NICAP because he had been working with NICAP uh, privately since 58, you see. Mm-hmm. But we didn't even know that. He looked up uh, all of these files and he discovered that uh, none of them, uh, almost none of them, were given any credence at all. 
and uh, that uh, J. Allen Hynek was the scientific consultant uh, of, of Blue Book. He wasn't there, of course. He was at Northwestern University. Uh, but uh, uh, on on these uh, very, very good cases that he had investigated himself and knew that there was something unidentified about them, uh, Heineck would, uh, would have um, uh, put answers like a meteor, you know, a cumulus clouds, you know, as an answer to what these witnesses were seeing. And uh, he he was enraged. <laughs> he yeah. couldn't believe that the scientific consultant of Blue Book, with its little tiny staff, you know, that, that wasn't even seemed interested, that the scientific consultant could give such incredible answers, and that's in quote, to the very finest UFO cases that, that he knew about and had investigated himself and that NICAP had thoroughly investigated. Yeah, and what I thought was really interesting uh, coming out of those meetings at Blue Book was that McDonald sort of kind of blew the whistle, I guess, on, on how poorly things were being run at Blue Book because prior to that, a lot of people didn't realize they were under the same impression that he had been that the, the Air Force was putting their best and brightest on, on the UFO situation when, in fact, uh, that wasn't the case at all. And he kind of became a little bit of a whistleblower to that lack of awareness going on there. Well, he, uh, McDonald was more than a whistleblower. <laughs> he had a tremendously effective personality. And uh, he uh, he blew the whistle all right, but it was more like a foghorn. It just sounded all over the... Uh, the entire uh, UFO community and into the public and into the scientific community. He, he, uh, he, you know, he blew the whistle into the scientific community that this was going on at Project Blue Book. Right. In other words, nothing. Exactly, yeah. He was the uh -huh. one that sort of was pulled the lid off of that yes. idea. Yes. Just one of the many amazing contributions here that, that he had on the UFO field. And uh, you sort of alluded to the, the rough relationship between McDonald and Heineck, and I guess uh, talk a little bit about that first meeting, because you have some great first-hand perspective from Jacques Vallée, who was actually in the room, uh, definitely one of those classic meetings that you wish you could have been a fly in the wall to see, because it sounds like it was just an amazing meeting of the minds and, and meeting of perspectives on UFOs and, and, and how to deal with the UFO situation within the confines of government. Um, I guess just tell people about that meeting that went on between McDonald and Heineck. Well, when when McDonald realized that the scientific consultant of Project Blue Book, the official Air Force, you know, project investigating UFOs, was uh, signing off these very important unidentified cases as meteors, etc., he went to Northwestern University where Heineck uh, was a professor. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he walked into Heineck's uh, office, slammed his fist on Heineck's desk, and asked him what was he trying to do. Uh, I, I can I wish I had been a fly on the wall. Yes, but yeah. uh, uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, Doctor Jacques Vallée, was extremely helpful in writing Firestorm. He he is a wonderful man. And uh, he wrote the um, the introduction to Firestorm for yeah. me. 
Yeah. And he, he was just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. His thoughts and notes and, and in the footnotes and stuff like that and, and, and input into the book is amazing yes. uh, throughout Firestorm. I really enjoyed that stuff as well. Let's sort of extrapolate a little more on just sort of the difference of opinion here because McDonald said all the way through his life since then that, that uh, Hynek was part of the problem and not the solution to the UFO situation. And, it sounded, and Hynek's point of view was that uh, McDonald didn't quite understand the political ramifications of this and, and the politicalization of science and, and how it, it wasn't just up to science to look into this UFO thing, that the military and the government had their hands deep into this mess of the UFO phenomenon. So they were, they were coming at this from two completely different perspectives. Yes, they were. Uh, we, we, we knew Heineck too. We valued and respected Heineck uh, almost as much as we did McDonald. I mean, Heineck was a wonderful man too, but he was an entirely different personality from a McDonald. When McDonald met a scientific problem, he smashed into it and he he would only think of the science behind it. He he was not uh, aware of or, or not even worried about any political implications. Uh, perhaps he didn't know them. I, I don't know, but I can't see a mind, a mind like that not realizing that there would be political implications. But uh, if he did, he felt that the scientific community should overcome all of the political implications be, with a problem as serious as possible unidentified flying objects, uh, aircraft entering Earth space. Yeah. I'd sort of explored a lot of this with uh, with Stan, and he sort of said, you know, that, that the personalities were so different, and Heineck sort of yeah. tackled the UFO phenomenon from a different angle. It's not necessarily that he was a bad person, just that he had a different way of handling how to study this. Oh, he, he was he was a fine person. He was wonderful, but he had an entirely different personality, uh, and also he uh, part of Heineck's problems were that he he actually needed the money that he made as a consultant to help put his children through college, and this is why he had accepted the job. And then he realized that he couldn't be an objective scientist, that he had to go along with what the government wanted him to do. And uh, he, he did this uh, because he essentially needed the money, uh, which sounds horrible, uh, but uh, I, I can understand that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but in the meantime, uh, you see, he, he got, uh, I think, hundreds of cases from Project Blue Book and got him into his own home, you see. Yeah. He, uh, and so he did get the collection of Project Blue Book cases that are available now uh, to, to uh, researchers and the public. Mm -hmm. So he did, he did that. And uh, I'm sure that wasn't with, <laughs> you know, with the the grace of the government saying, oh, yeah, you could do that. <laughs> yeah, that's no small task, that's that's for sure. Yeah, uh -huh. They're both just part of the tapestry of this UFO history, I think, that, uh, you know, it's interesting to look back on how things developed and how these different personalities clashed and stuff like that. Yes, and, and that, um, McDonald tried to uh, to work with Heineck, 
but it, he he found it impossible. The conflict of the two different kinds of personalities, it couldn't be handled. One recurring note in Firestorm that kept coming up, uh, especially when things got particularly spicy or interesting, was uh, this this case of the missing small notebooks. Uh, McDonald would have in his journal, he'd take uh, vigorous notes about certain events and certain meetings and stuff, and then at certain points it would say, see small notebook, and all these small notebooks, we still don't know where they are or anything like that. What's uh, any status update on the small notebooks? And, and tell people about the enigma of the small notebooks so they know what we're talking about. Uh, in, his, in his journals, he wrote uh, things that he could talk about, you know, that, that um, were not classified or secret. But every once in a while, when he would give a talk at a military base or someplace where he was a given classified information on a sighting by someone that didn't want their name used because, it, you know, they could lose their jobs or maybe even more. Mm-hmm. I think this is what what he would say, uh, why he would say that. Because uh, when he would put these little uh, parentheses, see small notebook, or he also sometimes said with the parentheses, see pocket notebook, uh, which are... Uh, basically the same, I think. Uh, it, it was always in regard to a visit he had made at a military area or some other place where he might have come across classified material. Mm-hmm. And that is why he did not write it in the general journal. Now, uh, people who would, who would see him uh, all over the country when he would come to NICAP, um, a subcommittee meetings in other cities that they uh, sometimes noticed that he had in his pocket, which was a very large pocket in his in his shirt, uh, a a particular type of notebook. You see, and a couple of times he was seen actually writing in it, but no one ever knew what he was writing. Or he never showed these notebooks to anyone except that they, they knew that he kept them in his pocket during meetings with the NICAP subcommittees. Yeah. And so we know what the, the missing small notebooks, uh, look like. And, um, I have searched for them since the, uh, late 1990s. I've gone at least three or four times, uh, for that to Tucson. To investigate leads, and I have yet to um, to find them. It's interesting. It's strange too. Uh, do you assign any uh, nefarious disappearances to this, or do you think it was just they were lost? Uh, you know, in in the ensuing years. Uh, I don't believe they're lost. Uh, I believe uh, that uh, MacDonald was depressed d- during the last uh, few months of his life. I believe that he hid them someplace where they would be very, very safe. And I don't know if he told anyone about them, uh, but that he hid them in what he uh, would determine a safe place in case something happened to him. You're into parapsychology, are you? A little bit, yeah. Yes. Uh, I have done um, three psychic archaeology projects. Uh, during my lifetime, um, it's uh, it's a it's called uh, intuitive criminology. You know, uh, psychic archaeology. It's a scientific process 
But until you prove what the psychics are telling you about where a certain thing can be found, uh, it can't be science until it's verified if you find what you're looking for yeah. through uh, what we call the psychic respondents. And so are you saying you've tried that process? I, with I, uh, I uh, am still using that. I have been using that for uh, several years, and I have a I have a clue, another clue as to where they might be, two clues, but I haven't been able to get to Tucson uh, uh, for a year or so. Wow. And the next time I go there, uh, I'm going to scout those two things out. Awesome. Yeah, that's fascinating. Maybe a remote viewer or something could uh, help out, or I think that's probably kind of the same realm of uh, research that you're talking about. It's the same thing. Uh, 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 Scientifically oriented uh, psychic archaeology is basically remote viewing. Yeah. Uh, But but it's by uh, talented psychics who have proven themselves over the years as being, uh, you know, verifiable at least 85% of the time. That's about as much as a, as a psychic can be verified. And I think the same thing is with re- remote viewing. Okay, yeah. Well, keep us posted on that if those small notebooks turn up, because I think that would oh, be... Oh, I will. Just, uh, <laughs> we will have to be a firestorm, too, or a reissue of the book with all this extra material added in, because it does yes. sound like there was a lot of uh, information there in those small notebooks. And like I oh, said... Oh, yes. Uh, just kept coming up <laughs> throughout the book, uh, you know, see small notebook, and, and it was a very interesting sort of attribute, I guess you could say, to to the way he put together his research. Yes. You note here in the book uh, how when he first sort of got into ufology in the public realm, and uh, just to sort of quote you here, you say, without any formal announcement, uh, they, they being the world of ufology, considered him their leader because of his ability to bridge, like we said, science and ufology and his confidence in the ability to get the scientific establishment to look at UFOs. Yeah. It seems like uh, in the ensuing years since his death, uh, ufology's kind of been without a leader in a lot of ways. It doesn't really seem to have anyone central to the field that it could get behind, except maybe Stan Friedman, but then a lot of Stan stuff is, uh, you know, debated heavily in the world of ufology, so it's hard for the entire field to get behind him. But it seems like ufology needs that leader. Well, there are leaders like 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 Stan. Yes, yes, I, I have high respect for Stan Friedman. Uh, but uh, there's uh, there's Jacques Vallée, but uh, Jacques Vallée does not keep in the field. You see, he he, he enters for two years, then he leaves, then he enters again. <laughs> uh, if he would only stay, uh, I think he could possibly um, be be someone like McDonald. Uh, but uh, I don't think we could ever find another McDonald. Well, I would hope that maybe someday another one will appear. Yes. Yes, that's the hope, of course, that we that uh-huh. ufology does find that bridge again and and uh-huh. sort of can do some work here to to yes. close that gulf. Now, may I uh, add something about psychic archaeology? Sure. If any of your listeners are interested in the fact that this is a scientific process. Uh, they they might um, go into a Stephen Schwartz Stephen A Schwartz website. I don't quite know what it is, but uh, he was the head of the Mobius Society. Okay. Uh, have them Google Mobius Society, and and they'll go into uh, Stephen Schwartz website. And uh, uh, the Mobius Society did remarkable psychic archaeology work, and uh, Stephen uh, wrote at least one book. 
about called the Alexandria Project, in which he describes the process. People uh, should check were out. Able to find through it through through uh, respondents, psychic respondents. Uh, yeah, I just pulled it up here on my computer, stephenaschwartz.com. That's probably a good, uh, good. gateway to get to that, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. Write it down, folks, and check that out for sure. Yes, if they want to know more about psychic archaeology. Mm-hmm. We sort of uh, touched on this earlier in the in the interview when we were talking about your take on ufology and the ETH theory and uh, what we were discussing, the Tonga Canyon Chronicles, uh, excuse me, Tonga Canyon Contacts. I don't know why I keep messing up the name there, but <laughs> um, and, and, and that was that McDonald's hypothesis surrounding uh, UFOs after carefully weighing all of the different theories behind what the UFO phenomenon was, was that the ETH was the least unsatisfactory hypothesis. Yeah. And, you, and you point out in the book, uh, saying that even today, McDonald's way of phrasing it is not well understood by people who uh, look at it after the fact, and, and they sort of confuse what he's trying to say there. So I guess clarify what he was saying here with ETH as the least unsatisfactory hypothesis, because I really like the way he phrased it. I might steal it and start using it as uh, my way of describing it, too, because well, it does make sense. Well, th- that was Jim McDonald's way uh, of describing it at first, the least unsatisfactory uh, hypothesis uh, as he uh, as he went into the field uh, more it, it became a very mild hypothesis <laughs> that that he has a, that he presents a very mild hypothesis uh, that, that that these uh, things may be uh, extraterrestrial craft but very very mild yeah uh, like he's canceled out all the other ones so that's the only yes. one that's left. Yes, he canceled out all the other ones. Yes, he did. And this was the one that was left. And he he was able to get what he called empirical evidence that, that these unidentified craft did exist and were actually flying around in the sky. And the, the way he did it was uh, what he called through the RV cases, the radar visual cases. And these were cases that he got from the then unclassified cases from Project Blue Book after Project Blue Book closed. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, where, where the where the uh, object in the sky performing uh, maneuvers that our aircraft possibly could not do, caught on radar by by pilots in the sky. At the same time, they were being caught on radar from uh, uh, military bases on Earth and also visu- uh, visually seen by people in the military base and uh, on Earth and in uh, the uh, aircraft, in our aircraft, mm-hmm. RV cases. And these he considered empirical evidence, which is this very next thing to scientific proof. Yeah. Never got scientific proof, but he did receive empirical evidence toward the end of his life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about the existence These, of UFOs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I should point out, too, that in Firestorm, we're not going to touch on too many of them, if any at all, really, but uh, the book is filled with amazing 
UFO cases, some of the very best UFO cases that there are, he investigated, and you do an amazing job of detailing those investigations in the book. So folks should check that out if they want to get, you know, the skinny on the on the best cases that are out there. They're in there in Firestorm for sure, and, and uh, that's something that a lot of people have pointed out uh, about James McDonald's work is just that he really found some of the very best cases that we still hold on to here in the UFO field. Well, he, he found some of them, and we referred him to some of them. Yeah. So uh, he he, he um, combined with the civilian research field like no other scientist ever had before. No, uh, you know, very, very prominent scientist like he was. Uh, he worked with the scientific community and the civilian research field. One of a kind. That's what it sounds like. Definitely one, one of, of a kind, kind, yes. Me and my roommates have started a, we're starting an internet website. Oh, cool. What is it? I'll give you the virtual experience, okay? How's that? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Well, I mean, if you want to contact me, I don't have a cell uh, right now because of payment complications. But, I mean, you can email me at the webpage. I check it. Yeah. yeah. You point out a very interesting fact here that was almost certainly lost in history uh, until you put together the book, and that is about his first public talk on UFOs is at the AMS in D.C. Uh, I'm not positive on the date. I want to say maybe early 67 or late 66. So forgive me if, I, if I'm if i not positive on the date. But the, the point of the question here or the observation is that he lists a lot of categories for what UFOs might be. And he has a sixth category. I'm not positive on the number of in the list, maybe eight. But the sixth category was psychic phenomenon. And you point out that he uh, had that in his first public talk, but then dropped it immediately after that first public talk. Let's talk a little bit about why you think that he dropped the psychic phenomena aspect of UFOs in at least his public appearances. MacDonald was uh, interested in uh, in psychic experiences, in parapsychology, in, in scientific parapsychology. Uh, he did not make this public to, to uh, many people. But some of the people in the civilian research field participated with him in, uh, oh, what you call uh, psychic experiments, mm-hmm. you see. This is not known in the field. And it certainly uh, wouldn't have been accepted uh, by the scientific community that does not accept psychic phenomena at all. Yeah. But uh, we know of his interest in parapsychology. It was not intense, but he was interested in almost everything, you see. Mm -hmm. I learned that from some of his colleagues who gave me interviews. When he presented that first, uh, it did not go well uh, with the scientific uh, people at at that talk. Uh, and, um, And so he dropped it. I, uh, he dropped it because uh, uh, psychic phenomena are not uh, scientifically proven yeah. uh, as physical phenomena are scientifically proven. And do you think that he dropped it from his presentations and stuff because uh, just sort of that whole thing that it was hard enough trying to convince the scientific community to look at UFOs, but then when you add in the whole psychic part, it's an additional challenge to, to really... Uh, to get this across to the scientists and shape what they're looking at. Well, uh, he might have, uh, I'm sure he he dropped it for that reason, but he might have, in, in his own mind, decided that, that no, uh, we can't investigate a psychic aspect of uh, UFOs because you cannot investigate them in a scientific manner, you see. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, he may have dropped it as a hypothesis that was not acceptable. Yeah. Him. And as you may notice here, as we're going through the book, I'm going chronologically throughout the book, uh, so we'll sort of get to the next point in the McDonald years that I found really uh, interesting and fun to read was that was his Australia-New Zealand trip. And just a, a real great look at, at sort of how intense of an investigator he was. I mean, he talked with so many people in Australia about the UFO phenomenon, all these different groups, and, and just did an amazing amount of investigation during a short visit to Australia. I mean, this guy sounded tireless uh, from from the description of just how much work he got done while in Australia. I guess just uh, tell people a little bit about that Australia trip so they can get an idea of just how rigorous and, and thorough a researcher McDonald was. Well, the, the man was uh, virtually tireless. He was described by some of his colleagues as that. He went to Australia on a um, scientific grant, you know, a, a grant from uh, a, a government. He had three, three uh, grants from the government mm-hmm. for various atmospheric physics uh, uh, aspects. And he went to Australia on one of those, but he, he got permission uh, from his uh, the person who was in charge of these uh, grants, these, this funding, to do the UFO investigation in his spare time. So all of the work in Australia was done in his spare time. And uh, he was so so honest that we know that he didn't, you know. Yeah. It was done in his spare time, the tireless man. And, and and how many people would you say, or how many cases do you think he investigated uh, while he was in Australia, you know, a ballpark number? Well, he uh, contacted uh, a couple of the more scientifically oriented organizations in Australia, and he followed out uh, several uh, of the finest that they could refer him to. And he went and he did his own investigation uh, on on these cases. Uh, entirely separate from what they had done. So uh, it was uh, at least several uh, of the very prominent cases in Australia yeah. referred to him uh, by civilian researchers whom he trusted. Mm-hmm. And I found particularly chilling was uh, how you note in the book that the Father Gill case stayed with him forever and and, and was one of the last cases that he even mentioned prior to his death uh, was the Father Gill case and how it shook his uh, his belief in the UFO phenomenon shook his perspective on on this UFO scene. Yes, uh, basically because the Father Gill case not only um, concerned physical close by unidentified aircraft in the sky over the water, but it also described uh, several humanoid type creatures who came out of one of the craft and were seemed to be working on the top of the craft. And he always avoided uh, cases where humanoids were concerned because he, he, he thought that the scientific community had to be convinced first that the craft existed before they even addressed the fact that there might be some kind of humanoid or intelligent being inside them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's why... Uh, it stayed with him for the rest of his life because uh, the case, which is uh, extremely well verified, involves humanoids. Yeah. That kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about my contention about that ABC special and that 
you know, we need to focus first on getting the UFO phenomenon looked at seriously, and then we can bring in some of the other stuff. But to try and put it all out there on people all at once is not going to get the job done. That that was McDonald's basic premise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The book really, uh, it almost at times feels like a movie in a way, and I'd love to see it someday made into a movie. One of the parts of the book with regard to what I'm saying is uh, that the Australia trip was really a highlight in his UFO investigating career. And then uh, towards the end, before he comes back, uh, the media coverage in Australia misrepresents what he's doing down there and begins to set the stage for all these problems when he comes back to America. So it's like, exactly. it's, it's like, you know, life imitates art or does art imitate life in a way? You know, it's like this is amazing in a way that just that just how it all sort of played out. And uh, just to, to, to bring people up to date on what we're talking about, uh, he was down there, as you said, uh, and doing the UFO investigation on his own time within the trip that was sponsored by the government to do investigation. Well, funded by the funded, government. I'm sorry, funded he, by the government. He did the, he did the work that the government sent him to do there. Exactly. Yes, the scientific atmospheric physics work. He did that, too. Yes. <laughs> but then, uh, then the Australian media turned it around and said that he was down there doing UFO research at the behest of the government, which then caused all these problems back in America, especially after he criticized uh, Project Blue Book and the Air Force. Yes, yes. Apparently, uh, if you are in another country, you do not criticize your own government, at least at that time. It was just absolutely unacceptable to criticize your own government if you are uh, visiting Another country, and that sounded. I mean, if you're a prominent person like McDonald was, mm -hmm. yeah, and that sounded like that was uh, that that sort of was the beginning of a lot of these problems uh, that he had with with people within the government and stuff uh, when he came back. Well, I, I think from the beginning that he was a problem to the government, <laughs> yeah. but this was a way that they could get to him, you know, uh, and uh, this is when the intensity of. Uh, of the government interaction against his work began, uh, when it became very, very intense, and uh, it, it uh, so many things happened to him, described in the book, uh, that uh, he became depressed, yep. and also family problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of that controversy uh, with the government and everything was fueled by Phil Klass, who really was on a vendetta. Oh. It sounded like against McDonald and, and, and viciously going after him and, and, and harassing him and going up the channels of government higher and higher up until yes. someone would, would put a stop to McDonald's UFO research or, or, or cut off his outside funding for his actual real science, well, not real, but his actually sponsored scientific studies. So I guess just talk a little bit about that vendetta that Phil Class had against McDonald because it was interesting in the book that it, they kind of started out on a cordial basis, but then things turned sour pretty fast. Yes, uh, they were both cordial men, and uh, and uh, uh, they were people that loved to laugh and make jokes. I liked Phil Class. He never attacked me personally, and so I liked Phil Class. I got along well with him, mm -hmm. and and they they were uh, you know somewhat of the same kind of personality, but but my own idea about Phil is that he might have been a secret agent uh, of of the government, a CIA, FBI. This is my own speculation about Phil Class. Like a mental and, type? And that he was, you know, um, he was told to go after this guy and stop him. 
Interesting, interesting. Uh, it's it's just speculation, pure speculation on my part. And I know that you you interviewed him, or at least were in communication with him uh, during the research of the book and stuff. Did did yeah. did your communication with him in researching the book and his take on 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 James McDonald so long decades after his passing uh, did that shape how how you feel about Class's potential role as a as a government agent? Well, uh, uh, that's when I first began to suspect. You see. But uh, Phil was very helpful for the book, too. Uh, I would say that we were friendly. Uh, there, there aren't many people in the UFO research field who will say that, that they were friendly with Phil Class. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, he, he attacks so many people in the field publicly that you, you can't be friendly with a, someone that attacks you like Phil Class attacked people in print. He never did that to me, you see. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I was able to appreciate his personality, his humor, and, and to uh, interview him uh, uh, for the book. After Class had caused all these problems for McDonald, did his opinion of him change? Was he disappointed with him? Was he uh, frustrated? You know, was he angry? How, how did he feel about Class after Class had caused all these problems for him with the, with the Office of Naval Research? Uh, how McDonald felt about Class? Yeah. Well... <laughs> I don't believe he was angry. He, he didn't. He didn't express anger like uh, ordinary people. Um, McDonald uh, kept his emotions to himself. Uh, he, he tried to be objective about everything, even uh, anger or outrage. Okay. Well, what about it the? Describes, it describes his personality in the book. Uh, it, it, the fact that he had lack of emotion against things that were really um, uh, hitting at him. He did not express emotion, uh, anger, outrage like most people. He was more objective. Okay, and then the next big event that came up in the book that I wanted to talk to you about and uh, that Stan also put McDonald over big for uh, when I talked to him recently, was that the 1968 congressional hearings on UFOs, and it, it does sound like uh, that, that McDonald really was the driving force behind this whole thing. It, it was an amazing first-hand perspective on all the different machinations and negotiations that went on to actually get this congressional hearing going. Uh, yes, uh, he uh, he worked with NICAP, you see. Kehoe and uh, Dick Hall were working on it, and I believe uh, Gordon Lore as well uh, for the congressional hearing. They were making some progress. Kehoe had uh, an in with certain congressmen who were interested w- with the in the UFO phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But uh, when when uh, McDonald entered and helped, it, it became uh, it took off. It took off uh, uh, more than I think NICAP could have possibly uh, imagined. Uh, it was it was McDonald's contributions toward that. Yeah, that's amazing um, to, to really think about, just it, that know, he could get something like that done and, and, and have it have it stick and really get that going, especially when you consider that here we are 40 years later and, and uh, that it hasn't advanced any further than that. that there was never any other follow-up to the... Never, never was a follow-up, no. And uh, McDonald tried to get the follow-up. He was told, well... Well, the election is coming up, and we can't get into that anymore. <laughs> so I think possibly the congressmen were told by the government, don't do this anymore. 
Yeah, and that sort of brings me into a point here uh, that Valet had said to you uh, that he thought the hearings were just uh, a means for the people in the UFO community to blow off steam and that nothing was really going to come out of it. And uh, he'd actually left the U.S. in disgust over the impending Condon report. Fascinating stuff there from Valet in the book. Uh, I just want to ask you, in retrospect here, 40 years later, what do you think of uh, those congressional hearings? Do you think they were just a, a sort of an, an, another layer of the PR front by the government to pretend like they were doing something about UFOs, or was it a serious effort that got derailed you know, by uh, upper echelons? Well, I think it was a very serious effort on the part of the Congress mm-hmm. and the congressmen uh, who participated. It was a serious effort on the scientists who, who gave a, a testimony. But it's possible that the government just let it happen to see what would, what, how the public would perceive it. And when they saw that possibly it was making an impression on the, on the public, then the government cut cut off further hearings. Yeah, that's my that that's how I would speculate or hi, uh, mildly hypothesize that. Okay. Less about the players and and about McDonald, but just more about because I know you were in the field at the time and you knew all the players and everything, and you were kind of had your finger on the pulse, I presume, of of the field of ufology. So I just sort of want to know what the mood was like amongst all of you guys in UFO studies as the hearings were were progressing and, you know, as they were coming together and when they happened. Were you guys hopeful? Were you thinking that this was it, this was the big breakthrough, or were you already getting kind of cynical that that it wasn't going to happen? Or, you know, what what were you all thinking when Congress finally decided to have some hearings on UFOs? Well, you see, uh, the the hearings that took place uh, over a a period of one day, Mm -hmm. they, they were not extended hearings. At least I think it was one day. Yeah, so the hearing on UFOs. Yes. And uh, we were, uh, the whole UFO research field was absolutely enthralled and delighted and hopeful because this was something that we had been trying to do for years. NICAP had been trying to do for years, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, to, to which we all belonged. And then when McDonald came and he was able to get uh, directly uh, into the p- congressmen who were most interested in in UFOs and in a hearing. He helped NICAP actually get in touch with the congressman and to set up the hearing. You can't imagine the delight we felt. And also McDonald's delight in his journal. He indicates that uh, he uh, hopes that this is the beginning of something very, very important. Definitely, yeah. And in the book, too, uh, yeah, you can really kind of sense how instrumental he was in getting the hearing going. Just uh, you, you just document so much of the legwork involved and in what he was doing, so many different people that he was meeting with and, and sort of all these different meetings and, and uh, plans that he was organizing around around the, uh, the hearing. It's amazing yes. first-hand perspective on how that whole thing came together. Yes. I think that people should know, of course, that it was Donald E. Kehoe, who was the director of NICAP, who had instigated these possible hearings. Yeah. And, and that McDonald came in and helped. Yeah. As you point out in the book, Kehoe had been trying to do that since like the early 60s. Yes. Kehoe and NICAP deserve equal credit. Okay. 
And now, uh, just sort of off of that, I, this is something that sort of just popped into my head, but I want to ask you about because uh, they only make a few brief appearances in the book, and that was uh, APRO. Uh, did you work much with APRO? Did you have much of a contact or affiliation with APRO uh, while you were involved in, in the NICAP organization in Southern California? I've kind of heard stories about how, you know, there wasn't an overt disputes between the two groups, but sort of a difference of opinion on how to handle certain aspects of the UFO phenomenon. So, And I do know that APRO is a little closer to you geographically. I think they were based in Arizona or New Mexico. I'm not positive which state. Arizona. Okay. So just wondering if you had, you know, if you dealt with Jamin Coral Lorenzen and all and stuff like that, because those two uh, folks are also kind of people that we've been talking about here throughout the course of our interview of uh, much like Idabel Epperson and D. Scott Rogo, instrumental and key figures in, in the field of esoterica that, that are kind of only mentioned in passing nowadays. And not too many people really know the full story of Jim and Coral Lorenzen other than, you know, all these different parts of the ufology world that they influenced and, and had a part of. Now, Ida Bill Epperson and uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the researchers in this area, including myself, were members of APRO. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, appreciated the, the contributions that Coral and Jim were making to the field. Uh, they were slightly different from NICAP, however, because um, the Lorenzans felt that a lot of the humanoid cases were uh, worthy of intense uh, study, yeah. you see. And these were humanoid cases in which uh, the human witnesses would come upon possibly a landed craft with the, these little strange little aliens uh, in the area. But when the aliens perceived that they were being seen by humans, they would get back into the craft and take off. That There was uh, very, very little communication. Yeah. Uh, maybe on one or two, a little tiny bit of communication, but nothing on the order of abduction. But the fact that the Lorenzans accepted some of these humanoid cases was uh, against NICAP's principles. Yeah. Uh, they, they felt that they had to concentrate fully on the unidentified aircraft that were in, in the space, you see, uh, flying through space, uh, being caught on radar, chased by jet pilots, uh, occasionally landing, but without any mention of humanoids. Yeah. But the, the landing and leaving uh, remarkably uh, strange traces in the soil and the vegetation. So uh, this was the disagreement between NICAP and uh, APRO. I wouldn't call it a real disagreement because I know that uh, there was no disagreement uh, on Kehoe's part with APRO. But it seems that the two organizations were going after different aspects. Of, of the same problem. Yeah, it's like a philosophical difference almost. Yes. Now, now uh, Jim uh, contacted, uh, Jim McDonald contacted uh, uh, Coral and Jim, and uh, he was uh, very impressed by Jim Lorenzen. But when he tried to work with Coral, it was his perception that Coral uh, wanted to be perhaps the head of the field, the most respected in the entire field. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had um, this idea. Um, I, I don't. I don't know what it was. Just the way her mind worked, and so Jim decided that he would work exclusively with uh, NICAP. Okay. But you see, uh, 
Coral and Jim uh, Lorenzen were very, very well known in the field, and they would come out occasionally here, and we would have meetings, you know, and invite them, and the, all the researchers in the area would come and, and talk with uh, Jim and Coral, and, and there was a very, very good interchange between the, the NICAP subcommittee in Los Angeles uh, and and uh, the, these two researchers. Yeah. And, and other places, too, of course. Mm-hmm. Were people in the field sort of pulled between the two different philosophical ideals where not to discuss humanoids and sort of throw those cases out or, or not, not to research them and then other people who said there should be? Was it sort of like, uh, you know, a, a, in, in different camps and stuff? No. Um, the Los Angeles subcommittee, uh, subcommittee of NICAP, we investigated reports of humanoids in relationship to um, landed uh, craft. Well, we investigated anything that came to our attention, uh, as long as it came from uh, what we considered to be honest, productive, you know, logical witnesses. Yeah. It's interesting in a way when you think about it, those two different philosophical points, because nowadays, as we were kind of talking about earlier, with the ETH being so firmly connected with the abduction scenario, that uh, humanoids and UFOs are very very much uh, interconnected, at least in the public's mind now, despite oh. how way back then there was this sort of debate over it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there was, I don't know if you would call it a debate uh, on the part of NICAP. I believe that uh, Kehoe felt that he must be uh, as scientifically oriented as possible mm-hmm. because he worked with congressmen and scientists and, you know, uh, everyone, and he had to be as scientifically oriented as McDonald was. And McDonald uh, paid almost no attention to humanoid cases, just like NICAP uh, yeah. did. That's really, it's it's uh, it's very interesting to think about how different things were, even though when you, when you look at the big picture, we still don't know the answer to these things, what UFOs are. It's amazing when you think about how 40 years ago there were all these questions involved with the UFO phenomenon uh, and these sort of debates and stuff that in some ways uh, have not necessarily been settled or or straightened out, but they're not the big the big philosophical debates anymore. I don't yes. know. That's, that's more of just an observation on my part. <laughs> yes. It's amazing uh, how much the field has changed over the years, despite the fact that, that at the end of the day, the crux of the problems remains. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's the frustration of it all. Absolutely, absolutely. The next part of the book that I want to talk to you about, and we, we don't need to get into the whole case because you devote a whole chapter to the Heflin photos, and we want to leave stuff here for people to find out in the book and to read. And uh, that, that's a whole section of the book that people should check out because it's a clinic on the Heflin photos and the early investigation into the Heflin photos. Uh, the question I had about them was uh, that you point out in the book that they went missing when Heflin loaned them to some mysterious characters, and then all of a sudden they reappeared something like 30 years later in 1993. They were just returned to him in his mailbox. Did they ever really figure out what the story was with the disappearance and then the return of the photos, and uh, where are they at now? The photos are in my care. Oh. Uh, before Rex Heflin died, uh, he, he made me the caretaker of the original copies of the Heflin photos. Uh, there, there are four of them, mm-hmm. but of course three were only taken uh, by these uh, so-called government agents who wanted to uh, to examine them and promised to return them to him. You see, uh, uh, when 
uh, it wasn't Heflin who made his photos public. It was a, a, of some of his relatives and his friends uh, that he had showed them to that first brought them to the attention of uh, newspapers in Santa Ana. And that's how we learned about it. Heflin at first thought that these things were some kind of new technology developed uh, by our government, possibly the, the marine the marine base that was nearby where he saw the, this thing fly over. And he uh, he was contacted by members of the marine base, and he lent them the photos, and they examined them and returned them. He, he lent them to another uh, government uh, official who asked for them. They were returned. So when these two people appeared, uh, two men appeared suddenly at his door one evening, he uh, thought, well, it's just another a government official wanting to borrow the photos, and they will be returned. And so uh, he um, he lent them to them, and they never returned them, except when they came back in 1993, mysteriously, without any explanation of where they had been. Uh, they had been well-treated. They had been well-kept uh, over those years. This was 1965, I think, or maybe early 1966, that that he uh, that he lost them. So that was um, how many years was that? that Almost that, 30 years. Yes, it was. Uh, it was about 30 years uh, when they were returned. They were a little, a little brownish, as if they had been studied uh, under light, you know, intensely uh, under light photographic light probably, but they were in very good condition, and they still had Heflin's uh, numbers on the back, one, two, three. These were the three of the craft itself, and he had kept the fourth of, of the smoke ring yeah. at the craft, uh, so he, he never lost the fourth one, but uh, when he uh, told me, well, he, he informed Bob Wood first, and then Bob referred it to me. He told uh, he told us that the one and the two and the three on on the three photos that had been returned were precisely the same as the four he had marked on the fourth photo, and we were able to verify that. You see, yeah, that there were more than the one of us uh, who verified that this was the identical marking that Heflin had left on the first uh, three original photos. Uh, exactly, exactly the same as the four. Interesting. And it's strange that they would they would just turn up like that thirty years later. That's bizarre. We uh, we don't know why. Uh, there had been um, I can't remember the name of the program. Unsolved mysteries. Was, Unsolved mysteries. Yep. Yes, uh, they they had uh, interviewed Heflin, uh, and uh, the uh, the whole the whole thing was. Um, you know, presented, and that the photos, the original photos, were now gone. And uh, it was just shortly after that that program air, uh, aired that the photos were returned. And we always wondered, uh, did it have something to do with the fact that the photos had been put out in the public 30 years later? I, I don't know. Uh, you can you can speculate all you want, yeah, as to why the, these two events occurred so close together. Heflin never found out 
anything more about that either, huh? No, not at all. And since you have the photos in your possession now, are you guys do, are you doing anything with them? You know, have they been rigorously studied since uh, the originals came back into the hands of the ufologists? Oh yes, uh, in the, in the 1990s, uh, Bob Wood and a uh, a chemistry professor from a a university in Southern California. I, I don't think I should give his name mm-hmm. because he does not uh, become uh, too public. That's fine. Uh, Bob Wood and uh, the, the uh, other scientist and myself wrote. I mean, we studied. I mean, uh, the the chemistry professor was an expert also in computer enhancement. He had the very finest equipment on computer enhancement, and he took on the task of a computer enhancing the the uh, the photos, all of them, to answer all of the questions that McDonald had had about the Heflin photos. Yeah, uh, McDonald never accepted the first three as being related to the fourth. Yeah, he accepted the first three as very possibly authentic photos of an unidentified flying object, but he had trouble relating uh, the three to to the fourth photo, which was a uh, smoke ring that was left behind when the uh, unidentified aircraft uh, vanished into the distance. So uh, we uh, took five years before this uh, study was complete, and I, I did the historical information on the Heflin photos for this paper that was published in a refereed scientific journal, you see. Yeah. And uh, this was, uh, this had never happened before uh, as regards the Heflin photos. And um, Bob Wood uh, participated both in the computer enhancement and in the historical account. And then we combined, uh, well, I'll give his first name, er Eric. (laughs) remarkable computer enhancement of the photos which answered all the questions that McDonald had had all, all those years uh, about uh, the authenticity of the of the fourth photo being related to the first three yeah you do a marvelous so, job in the book recounting uh, just how rigorously McDonald looked at those photos and how he didn't pull any punches in a way and he kind of upset Heflin uh, with his intense uh, investigation into the photos. It was kind of interesting uh, in that in that in that personal regard. So it was uh, it's a great chapter in the book. That people should check out. And that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season Four. Once again, big big thanks to Ann Druffle for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Of course, you'll be hearing from her next week as we close out the Ann Druffle miniseries here on BOA Audio, wrapping up the Firestorm talk. Until then, though, you definitely want to check out Anne's website, www.andruffle.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Fascinating stuff there, and a look at her amazing career in the world of ufology. Certainly a place you're going to want to examine after you've listened to the complete BOA Audio miniseries. Up next, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. We'll tackle two here this week. First, a follow-up from last week's email regarding the Barack Obama comment and the bitch slap from our listener who wrote in. And it's actually from him, so we've got a little exchange going here at the end of the program, kind of entertaining, I hope, and uh, amusing to me, which hopefully will 
transfer over to the listeners. Here's what he has to say. Again, it is Jason, no hometown listed. Jason, I said last week, no hometown listed. You wrote me after I read the email. You didn't even send me your hometown here in the follow-up email, so you're not even playing along. It's, it's no fun. But anyway, Jason, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Nice interview with Ann Druffle on the 15th. As always, you do nice work. I was, however, surprised to hear you read my email because I kind of jumped on you for a brief throwaway political comment you made. I didn't mean to bitch slap you, your words, not mine, but I spent a lot of time in the newspaper industry where political opinions shouldn't, but unfortunately do, make their way into reports, so I'm pretty sensitive about those things. I guess this email is a vague apology. I still think I'm right in the grand scheme of listenerhood, but it's your show. I'll still listen unless you start promoting amnesty for the greys. Come on, they probe butts. Signed, Jason. No hometown listed. Jason, send us that hometown. I'm obsessive-compulsive, and not, not knowing your hometown now is going to be sitting in my ear like a bug until we straighten that out. But anyway, I wrote Jason back right away after this and had a good laugh with him because, you know, he doesn't have to apologize. I was apologizing, and I used the term bitch slap just to sort of lighten the mood a little bit. You know, as he said, it was just a brief throwaway comment. I didn't think it was that big a deal. He didn't either. But as I pointed out to Jason when I wrote him back, I don't want this segment of the show just to be fluff emails from people who are complimenting the program. Believe me, I appreciate those. Those are awesome, and I love getting them, and we do get a ton of those. But I don't want to read them all the time at the end of the show, because then people aren't even going to listen to this segment, because they're just going to think that it's positive emails. What's the point? I want to put some thought-provoking stuff in here at the end of the show. You know, that's what it is, listener feedback. It's not listener fluff. So I appreciate that Jason wrote to me, and I have a lot of respect for him that he did. It's an I'm sorry, no I'm sorry email exchange. Jason, no hometown listed. No big deal. Don't worry about it, buddy. I wasn't mad at you. I was in the wrong there. We're all good. Thanks for sticking around the program. I have no plans to endorse Amnesty for the Greys as of yet, but we'll see what happens maybe when they land. I may pull a Kent Brockman and immediately sell out to the Greys, you know. Up next is one of our favorite groups of listeners, the international listeners, and it's from Paul Kimball Country, Nova Scotia, Canada. A very amusing email to me. I may be completely wrong in why it's amusing, but I'll let you know what's going on here, and you can judge for yourself. Pretty simple one. Hey, Tim, I love your shows. Keep up the great job, and you really need to get Major Sergeant Robert O'Dean, David, in Nova Scotia, Canada. And then after that, listed four times in yellow font under the signature is Retired Command Sergeant Major Robert O'Dean. But when I got the email, of course, it was on a white background, so I couldn't really see what it was. And then I highlighted it and saw that apparently he had put Retired Command Sergeant Major Robert O'Dean four times afterwards in yellow font. My theory is this is some kind of subliminal message or attempt to subliminally influenced me to have Sergeant Major Robert O'Dean on the program, and that's why it amused me. David, if that was your secret plan, subliminal messages, it didn't work on me. I sidestepped your wily plan. I highlighted the text and saw what it said. Nonetheless, thank you for the guest suggestion, David. I will definitely check out Robert Dean and see what the story is with him, and uh, stay tuned to BOA Audio. You never know. He just may turn up on a future episode. Speaking of future episodes, how would you like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback? 
that is really simple. You just write to BOA Audio at Hotmail.com or go to BanalofAmerica.com and click the contact button. And the third way is to join up at the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com, the official BanalofAmerica.com message board. Any of those methods puts your correspondence into my hands for a future BOA Audio listener feedback. Moving on, let's do the thanks portion of the show. They are the esteemed and infamous VOA staff putting out top-notch columns at Banal of America Monday through Friday. We're not just an esoteric audio show. We're also an esoteric stomping ground for some of the finest writers on the web right now in the lair of esoterica. They are, of course, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Paul Black, and Lasha Siniuk. Don't just listen to the shows, read the columns at BOA, then you'll get the full meal that the Banal of America team is offering to you. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Longtime listeners of the show know what comes next. It's the begging for donations part of the program. Last I checked, this depression is still ongoing. It hasn't stopped yet, so... I know a lot of people just don't have the money to shell out for donations to an underground esoteric audio program. I understand that and can respect it. There are some folks, however, who are sitting pretty through these troubled times. God bless them. I envy you, and I hope that someday I can join you. But for now, I turn to you and ask for donations to Banal of America and BOA Audio. How do you do that? Simple. You go to BOA, click the PayPal button on the homepage or the audio archive. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the donation process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and Banal of America up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, it's no surprise, we close the book on the Andropple miniseries here on BOA Audio, Andropple Part 3 of 3. It's the second half of our discussion on Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. Let me run down the list here of what we will be talking about. We're going to be covering McDonald's goals for a national UFO monitoring system, the unspoken pressure on him to provide a UFO breakthrough, an in-depth examination of the Condon report, including the low memo and how McDonald was responsible for that document getting widely released, the reaction of ufology to the Condon report, and if Ann thinks that the UFO field was permanently damaged by the series of negative events that befell it in the late 1960s and early 70s, fascinating on-the-ground perspective here from Ann Druffel. She was deep in the UFO field when the Condon report hit the streets, and in the weeks and months leading up to the publication of the Con Report, and you're going to get some amazing perspective on this critical event in the history of UFO studies. On top of that, we're going to be discussing the folding of NICAP, another big event that Ann saw firsthand as it happened, and we're going to find out all about the events that led up to McDonald's death, beginning with his clandestine meeting with top government officials, Regarding the UFO phenomenon, the SST congressional hearings, which saw McDonald publicly ridiculed by a congressman, family issues that plagued him towards the end of his life, and his tragic subsequent suicide, and we're going to get Anne's thoughts on what may have been behind it. We'll also pontificate on McDonald's legacy and the effect his death had on the bridge between science and ufology. 
plus, of course, tons and tons more, lots of big-picture analysis of the UFO phenomenon and the ufology field with Ann Druffel, a 50-plus-year veteran of UFO studies. It is an amazingly comprehensive interview. We wrap up the miniseries next week with Ann Druffel. If you've stuck with us for the first two parts, you definitely want to hear part three, because in total, this complete set is nothing short of amazing and one of the very best interviews in the history of this program. And on that note, we end this week's episode of BOA Audio. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, signing off.